Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Beautiful. Excellent clapping all around. Thank you. Can um, I just before before we start, could I just say one funny thing very quickly? Yeah. Um, Lucy, when Lucy started going through the audio today, she sent me a voice note, and this is something I didn't realize on the recording. But she said that when you did the thing with M. John Harrison, only you clapped, like despite and because she said, look, because we just yeah we're podcasters, so we just like get sort of like oh yeah three two one clap. He didn't, and I realized because there's no there's no clap on his side, and I just realized. So M. John Harrison just watched me sort of stare down the camera, go three two one, and clap without for no reason. <laughs> It is. It is one of the. It's. It is. It is one of the 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 earliest uh, rituals and arcane arts of the podcaster. The mysterious <laughs> clap just has to. <sighs> that right, that has get... happened here a, a bunch of times when we've had guests who uh, are good of heart and spiritual character and are not podcasters, um, and and we've done the clapping thing, and they've been a bit confused by it. Yes. Yes, it, it is, is ritual, though. It's it's ritual. How how are we going to honor Father Dagon if we don't do the ceremonial clap before we record in his honor? Exactly, it's, it's, it's the striking of the flippers, you know. But it's it's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> See, people assume I'm clapping with hands, but but I, I have these leathery uh, uh, ichthyic flippers that I just Where clap together going, every time. We don't need hands. <laughs> <laughs> You see, you see uh, my great-grandfather, old Obed Marsh, uh, made some deals. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was a deals guy. He was one of the first deals guys. Beautiful deals. The best deals. <laughs> the best de- <laughs> so uh, if, if, if Donald Trump had the character of Obed Marsh, we would be in a much more different political climate, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Better, worse, who can say? <laughs> who can say? <laughs> <laughs> in 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 breeding with the old ones gets me to work on time. Who's to say whether it's good or bad? <gasps> oh, uh, hello everyone! Hello everyone! That's that. That was. I hope you enjoyed the opening banter of today's podcast. Um, and I hope that none of that made sense, and you're already experiencing some kind of uh, uh, amphibian-eyed psychic damage. My name is Ashley Darrow, one of the co-hosts of Horror Vanguard, joined as always by. Uh, John, aka the liquor guy, who just dropped out of the recording session. I'm assuming being carried away by a Migo. Uh, I hope I hope that John's brain cylinder is reconnected with our efforts soon. Well, the see, see, the thing is, the thing is, uh, this is actually the lot the weird signal long game to supplant horror vanguard <laughs> yeah sort of like this is the, the second time the second time i've been on hello i'm sean uh aka hauntonaut on twitter co-host of weird signal podcast and yeah now and now and now that you've granted me granted me ingress you know that's just what hap- is happening now we're just just going to be re- you're going like you're going to be consumed within moments i'm afraid and uh, then there will just be just be me and later lucy and that will be horror vanguard you could have just asked. It's it's no secret here that we firmly believe Weird Signal is the officially better version of Horror Vanguard. We would have just ceded territory immediately and become some kind of subordinate feudal state for the Weird Signal-like kingdom. Well, I'm afraid um, if, if, we, if we wanted... Well, whoever said anything about asking for it, I'm afraid. Like, this is... <laughs> 
Dad, you know what? You know what? You're, you're, you're right. You're right. Uh, uh, John, John, I'm glad. I'm glad that the Migos have, uh, in their swarming wisdom, brought you back to us. Uh, it turns out, you know, I hadn't, um, I hadn't performed the correct uh, yearly sacrifices to my uh, broadband internet provider, um, but <laughs> you know, I've offered them some blood, and they seem to be satisfied. Someone forgot their summoning salts this morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 me before my summoning salt hinge profile picture prompt. <laughs> uh, have, we, have we done an actual introduction to this episode yet? Uh, uh, ex- except, for, except for you. Who, who are you? I, honestly, at this point, I <laughs> don't know anymore. Um, once again, I find myself back here. It's John. How are we doing? Let's 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 make a podcast. Oh, this is this is this is going to be great. Always good when the weird signal people come back to our our frightful little program. Well, and today well, we're, we're we're talking about one of the most uh, uh, spooky dudes around, Mister Cthulhu. Uh, parentheses, gay. As <laughs> <laughs> the 2007 Cthulhu movie, aka the gay Cthulhu movie. Yeah, so I was, I was I was workshopping this on the way here. You know what's funnier, like gay Thulu, Quithulu. <laughs> oh, I think I think Lujbut Cthulhu is the most appropriate though, because this pushes us into like beyond the beyond the realms of mere human speech, right? This is- oh my god, <laughs> that works. Um, that yeah, works on absolutely. on literally every every possible valence. That is. Un- unpronounceable by the tongues of man, incorporating Lovecraft's psychosexual anxieties. Oh, Lujubuthulu plus was so good. <laughs> Cthulhu, Cthulhu is an LGBTQ plus ally. You heard it here. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. <laughs> I'm getting service top energy from Cthulhu. I don't know about everyone else here. I, I, th- I think that that's the vibe I'm picking Look, up. Cthulhu and the rest of the old gods just want to be inside you and that's beautiful and don't we all want to be inside them that's the thing (laughs) that's the thing i can see him i can see him being very caring in the afterglow as it were yes (laughs) (laughs) this is this is going to be a fun episode and it is a very normal episode as as they always are when we talk. I'm single. <laughs> <laughs> whomst, whomst among us, whomst among us in the dark honesty of the night has not thought of the great Yog Shoggoth and thought, you know, I could fix him. <laughs> <laughs> Just staring, staring into the the intertwined, uh, converging. <laughs> Fears of madness and just just going out loud in front of my family. Yeah, he'd get it. <laughs> I mean, okay. So Azathoth, musician, right? Uh, piping flutes of madness. That sounds like the music I listen to anyway. Mm-hmm. Provider, the source of everything in the universe. Uh, uh, down for a weird conversation. I I'm feeling a good match percentage here. I think our OK Cupid profiles are going to connect. Once again, once again, we we find ourselves being the podcast that's really just about love, and and <laughs> and I think that's beautiful. <laughs> I, I I did not bring up Badu once in my notes for this episode, and now I, I it, is, it is I'm immediately talking about it. So we have to like 
Alan Badiou in Praise of Love is is one of the I guess official horror vanguard books now. Yeah, it's it's part of the canon uh, for better or worse. Um, well, I suppose then it is it, it it's incumbent upon me to um uh to 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 ask um my dear friend Ash uh to explain uh to me to Sean to everybody listening um what is 2007's Cthulhu about this, I just want to encourage everyone in the audience uh, to skip this if you don't want to at a random point in this pricey uh, hear a list of unspeakable names that will summon horrible thoughts to your minds uh, but also too late I don't know where it came from. Cthulhu wound up being a strange movie in how close to home it was. Queerness as a Shagothian form that is chased out by violence from family, faith, and home. I was going to make this a confessional precy that would be the perfect opener for a Midwest emo song. But then, appropriate to our subject, I felt the undeniable impulse to make things weirder. Two things stand out to me now after having finished Cthulhu. The first, to be queer is to be strange. The second, in the sprawling chaos of cosmic horror, I glimpsed the promise of utopia. Queerness in all its forms is a thing of many shapes. Whether we're talking about intra the individual or within our larger societal groups, to be queer is to be in a state of flux. Hegemonic forces instill artificial stillness as a way to freeze not our movement, but their power. From that standpoint, the true face of fell gods becomes a bit easier to see through the haze of time. It is in this capturing of the gaze of the adversary that we make our first steps towards the utopian. When asked about a gay colleague, Lovecraft quipped, I wouldn't know whether to kiss him or kill him. Ironically, that is possibly the most eroticized comment Lovecraft ever made in his letters. HPL was notorious for never mentioning sex, attraction, lust even when wielding the long arm of a New England aristocrat's posturing. There have been many writers, and indeed a few scholars, that have speculated that Lovecraft himself may have been queer. Such repressed libidinal energies could certainly account for the old man's unfavorable, genocidal dispositions, but I don't cede to those readings of HPL's history. We simply do not know. And, unless a box of letters awaits discovery in some dank New England attic, we will never know. It's only in reading and interpretation. However, this state of unknowing is not an abnegation. We are queer. We are the embracing of unknown spaces, unknown desires, and unknown states of knowing. There will always be a frontier of the unknown luring us with its libidinal, hypnotic call. There will always be a queering of the human condition. Cthulhu is one of the few Lovecraftian texts I've seen that has aimed the monstrosities of Lovecraft's fiction in a politically left direction. The same oppressive forces that Lovecraft would have lauded as our saving grace are now enmeshed into the cults and monstrosity upon which he scaffolded such great fear. Of course the cult of Dagon would recreate homophobic discourses of reproduction, fascist attitudes about family, capitalistic utilizations of violence and economic power an ichthic stand-in for so many contemporary churches, societies, and states. Co-constitutive structures that regenerate oppression like the totem to Cthulhu. So many who approach the altar of the weird become consumed by its reversed gaze. Land, Kiernan, Joshi, Price. Either this thing speaks first and foremost to those predisposed to fascism, or we have yet to wrest the orienting gaze of the Lovecraftian from the old man's worst living impulses. 
Months before his death, HPL figured it out. He cast off his racism and took the first steps towards a socialist political stance. In strange aeons, even death may die. Cthulhu took even longer to emerge from this cyclopean hall of oppressive dreams, but in 2007 it did. A first startling, awaking from a nightmare. The promise of Utopia is the jolt necessary to awaken the dreamer from the stupor of the fascist sleep. Clarifying, coming into focus, and assembling. Join us as we discuss Cthulhu. <laughs> yes, 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 indeed. All right, got the Nick Land mention out of my system. We can continue with the rest of this conversation. <laughs> but before we do, I just want to ask you something very quickly, actually, because what you, meant, you yes. mentioned uh, Kiernan. Is that Caitlin R. Kiernan? That is Caitlin R. Kiernan. Uh, what's, what's wrong? Because uh, what, what's wrong? Like literally, I'm asking this genuinely. Oh, so, like, what's wrong with them? Oh, because, no. and I'm not, oh. I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not sort of like saying, hey, like, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with them. I literally just been sort of like, I unfollowed them a while ago because I found them annoying, and I realised I never enjoyed their books as much as I thought I would. What? So, actually, I don't know. What's the what's um, what's the dish? I, 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 Ash, <laughs> oh, oh my yeah, god! This Ash, is. Would you would you like to would you like to explain? <laughs> The the Caitlin Arkin is... arc that uh, they've been on. Sir, serve set. We will and get spike. to the film list. That I promise we will. But oh, this is well to talk about anything Lovecrafting. We first have to dig through about like uh, roughly a hundred years of fascist weirdos talking about ghosts. Um, so Caitlin O'Kiernan, uh, uh, who, who listeners of the show will recognize because I've recommended uh, their story Title Forces several times. I still think the story is good. Um, but uh, so Caitlin R. Kiernan recently in the last few weeks, actually, I do believe, uh, uh, took a took a turn despite being uh, a trans individual themselves to to uh, they, they took the turfy turn. And, and along with that, as all turfs must, uh, they revealed themselves to be uh, somewhat of a despotic racist. Uh, they hastily deleted all of those tweets, but their weird racist blog is still up. Uh, so, so just, just like, just that's, like S.T. Joshi, just like great. Robert M. Price, like Nick Land, every, everybody who touches the Lovecraftian flame, this is, this is, I think, a, a problem we must wrestle with. The thing, like, again, so this is, this is totally, well, actually, no, it isn't totally tangential, but it is basically tangential what we're talking about. But yeah, like, I, I attempt, because Caitlin Arkinen's one of those writers who sort of like on the surface seemed like they'd be perfect for me. So, you know, like a, a, a queer sort of, you know, not postmodern, but sort of, uh, I think by their own description, sort of like post Joycean, like mm. being mm-hmm. weird with it, you know, sort of like interesting with it, horror writer. But then I just realized their stories were all kind of a bit crap and they definitely weren't as good a writer as, they, as their uh, self descriptions. Indica- you know, it you know would lead you to believe. Uh, so I'm glad it turns out they're a trash fire. Um, I mean, I'm not glad there's another turf in the world, especially one that you know, like, you know, did, did the thing of being, you know, yeah, you know, you know what I mean. You know, understand what I mean. Oh, one hundred percent. I always knew there was something there. <laughs> this is this this is this is a this is a queer Lovecraftian episode, and and there's nothing wrong with embracing a little vindication. <laughs> yeah, uh, glad I never did. Yeah. Yeah, was let down by their books on account of them not being great. Anyway, uh, films. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, I, I, I will agree. The majority of Kiernan's writing has, is like, the Maltese Unicorn was the most overwritten Chuck Tingle fiction I have ever read. But Tidal Forces was really good, and it was because I read Agents of 
I read Agents of Dreamland during the pandemic, which I really, mm-hmm. I really liked. Uh, but Black Helicopters, the sequel, was just again sort of overwritten, pretentious garbage. Like yeah. I really like I like I got I, I, it. It was um, I came across the quote from them that really annoyed me was when they said something like the Joyce liberated us from plot or something. And I was like, yeah, but you're not, but you're not Joyce though, are you? <laughs> 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 and indeed one can Ooh. tell um yeah so there you go um yeah uh yeah i mean I, I i totally agree i think this is a good bridge in into the text of the movie though because this is this is something that i, I mean like so i've I, like lovecraft studies was the thing that got me into graduate school like like it was the it was ultimately like the thing that set me down this incredibly annoying path that i'm still on today <laughs> And like one of one of the recurring themes is like every everybody doing like weird theory, everybody doing Lovecraftian stuff like it almost feels like there's a ticking clock with this thing, you know, like everybody gets bit by it. But a gay Cthulhu movie, we've we've got something that that bucks the trend. We do. We do indeed. The um, yeah, because like Lovecraft was um I am getting a little bit of, e- of echo of my own voice off of someone again. I don't think it'll interfere with the recording, but it is distracting me slightly. So I apologize if I occasionally <laughs> like stumble a little bit with my words. But anyway, the, um, yeah, Lovecraft obviously, I mean, he's, how do you even begin to talk about someone like H.P. Lovecraft, you know, because, because his, his, um, the shadow that he casts over, um, over genre fiction over horror in particular but as well as science fiction and fantasy uh, and this thing whatever this thing called the weird is um it's it's um it's it's so i mean and not that i suggest that we would attempt to summarize his work on this podcast because that would be totally redundant because everyone here listening you know knows roughly who lovecraft is but for me like my first encounters with lovecraft were he was a writer that did things i didn't know you could do and and invoke feelings and i don't mean like primary emotional feelings exactly but in a certain sense I do but he was able to invoke things in me and provoke things in me that I didn't know were things that were there um which I'm aware sounds quite queer which isn't actually what I mean but I mean that his um the way his fiction the way it would it would um at its best it it gives you this tracing of this of the vastness of this other history or this other sense of what the cosmos is was such a the feeling it gave of there being something that is always out just outside of your touch and that there's a depth to a depth to the world which you can't ever really know and grasp is was such a such an important thing to discover uh in in writing because i was as you know and i think you know, the prime age to read lovecraft is probably when you're about 14 which is when i did oh yeah when i, mm-hmm. when I, I got the uh, and i still have my copy somewhere of like the necronomicon you know big black collection yeah with yes, the, and all, yes yeah yeah and i remember like for like <laughs> um just being fascinated with just being uh, that book as an artifact like the smell of that book i was obsessed with because it just it was just something so otherworldly something so absolutely other to anything i'd read before like the only horror fiction i'd really read beforehand was stuff like uh not 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 the slight at all but was was like stephen king obviously he owes a great debt to lovecraft but like he isn't lovecraft you know he can't no one can Certainly. do what lovecraft did like lovecraft can do yeah i think i'm um, so I, i'm happy that you brought up stephen king because i think stephen king uh, has a really important quote that I, i've always returned to to help like 
contextualize what Lovecraft is, both as as an individual human and as kind of a cultural phenomenon. But but writing uh, uh, in uh, on his own writing, uh, St- Stephen King commented, Lovecraft uh, opened the way for me as he had done for so many others before me. Mm-hmm. It is in his shadow so long and gaunt and his eyes so dark and puritanical, which overlie almost all of the important horror fiction... Almost all of the important, almost all of the important horror fiction that has come since, and that's that's like without Lovecraft, we don't have Star Trek. Like like space fantasy is is contextually built upon Lovecraft. Lovecraft came up with the idea for ancient aliens, which for better or for worse, that's a massive massive aspect of our culture. Like dying Earth history is partly rooted in a lot of the cosmic horror stuff. Like. It, it, every, everything sprawls out from the Conan the Barbarian, uh, li- literally, literally sword and sorcery stuff like exists in part because of H.P. Lovecraft inspiring the original sword and sorcery writers like his his cultural like D&D and the, the shape of D&D exists partly because of H.P. Lovecraft, like his cultural impact is wild, wild to trace. And I, like, yeah, like I remember reading Lovecraft when I was an early teen and then you start hearing about the Necronomicon. And of course we're, we're a hundred years in the future. So you hear about the Necronomicon before you read Lovecraft's writing. And then, and then you find out that Lovecraft invented it and it's this fake book. And, and now you have like this lethally powerful piece of, of occult information because you're walking around with a bunch of other goth teens who believe the Necronomicon is real and you know that this weirdo from a hundred years ago made it up as a joke, you know. So like, like it opens up these like secret histories uh, st- start to unravel with Lovecraft, and like that that I think weirdly aligned with my political impulses too, because I had that kind of you know like rebellious. So something something not right is going on here. There's something under the surface that doesn't quite apply. There's something deeper. There's something historic. And that same sensibility feeds into the weird. It just unfortunately very rarely to almost never pops out in Lovecraftian fiction. Yeah, there's a secret, right? There's a secret. That's the that's the that's the whole kind of joy of of Lovecraft, isn't it? That's what drives so many of the protagonists into into you know semiotic collapse and complete insanity. Is that there's this kind mm-hmm. of there is the world behind the world, right? There that that you have to kind of like voluntarily sort of submit to. And out of that submission comes this kind of like arcane knowledge about yourself and about the kind of the, about not not even just the world, but about the very nature of existence. I I, I completely agree. I think it's like the perfect thing to read when you're 14, <laughs> like because you suddenly go, oh, this is this speaks to exactly exactly my own kind of like affective state, my own orientation towards the world. I think there's he's he's yeah. such a good. Weirdly, I don't think he's considered enough as a modernist writer, like with all of those mm-hmm. kind of uh, experiments and like language and and pushing language into it, like breaking the meaning, uh, you know, language as a means of conveying meaning kind of like eventually just kind of snapping under the sheer weight of the words itself is one of the things is That's- that I think is so kind of powerful about Lovecraft. That's that's very interesting that you should say that, John, because obviously, in stylistically, he's well. Stylistically, he wants to be Arthur Macken, you know. That's that's what he wants to be. Oh, but yeah. no, I think I think you're absolutely right to place him within the context of like the modernist impulse because of what the actual philosophical content of his worldview and his, and his writing is. You know, being profoundly well, actually, almost more. 
in a certain sense, they were postmodern almost, being you know, um, that you know, the thing that uh, Lovecraft, Lovecraft always returns to is the impossibility of grasping the world as it really is. It will always mm-hmm. it, it it escapes our ability to think it. It escapes our ability to speak it. And him being, you know, fundamentally a reactionary, his response to the postmodern insight is one of just absolute horror and saying, you know, we just need to, it was better when we didn't know these things. These things are true and we should not know them. We should not think these things because they are too damaging. We can't, we're not equipped to deal with them. Yeah, absolutely. You're left kind of adrift. Right, so you you end up. This is something that I think Thomas Lagotti kind of builds on. So like you're left kind of epistemically yeah. adrift, and so for Lovecraft, your your only answer is you run or you go insane. Uh, and love uh, for Lagotti, like that's where the horror is. That actually you're drawn to the revelation uh, because Lagotti is is in a very postmodern sense much more uh, conflicted politically than Lovecraft uh, is in his writing. Um, even though, obviously, as Ash pointed out, he goes through that his kind of arc, his 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 sort of self epiphany later in life, which again, it's a very it's another kind of very modernist detail about his life. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he, has yeah, a, yeah. he has a sort of Joycean with- epiphany about himself, and with Lagotti as well, and. Um- something that Ligotti articulates in his stories which makes them in a sense more 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 disturbing on a primary level than Lovecraft is maybe is that is Ligotti is aware that one of the responses to this isn't you know insanity or fleeing into the night or anything like that a response to this discovery sometimes is just being sad it's just sadness yep. um, like you know that that because you you know just the realization that you know you, you know, you've discovered the way that things are and you also realize there isn't a way out not even death or insan- or madness is neither madness nor death are ways out so what do you do then that's in some ways a more interesting question almost because you know you, you, you know that maybe is why um I don't know. Maybe maybe you could almost say there's some. Well, actually, no. You can't like you can't ring any kind of like optimism, no matter how like deeply ironised out of the Gothi's writings because they're so miserable. Um, which is why we love him. Which is why we love our spooky boy. But yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's something that like you know, and maybe it's an emotional immaturity in Lovecraft. That's something he doesn't. It doesn't appear to him as an option. Is that like? And the next day, I went back to work, and I was just feeling just like a little bit worse about everything. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think like Lovecraft goes through so much like weird and interesting evolution in terms of his work as a writer, moving away from like his his like dedication to Mackin that he has, and like you know, once he escapes his juvenilia, he's just kind of like remixing Mackin until he yeah. like moves towards like what we would get as like proto science fiction towards the end of his career. And then, and then, right when right when he stops being a horrible bastard, he dies. <laughs> so we never really see what 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 could have been for a more hopeful or more like positive Lovecraft in the future. But I think like so one of the things I've talked about um, before on the show, and uh, that oh, I see the Migo have claimed John yet again. Ah, uh, he'll be back. He's oh, always right. back. There he is. There we go. John, the Migo keep abducting you. I, d- I don't know what I've done. I don't know what I've done, but that's okay. That's okay. You, the important, the important thing is, is you've not is done. Back. I can tell you what you've not done is you've not <laughs> properly invoked the Elder Sun. You know, oh. that's what. 
I actually genuinely, I have on the back of my laptop an Elder Sign sticker that Lucy brought, uh, like gave me that she got from, I, she, I can't remember if she went to Necronomicon. No, she hasn't been to Necronomicon, but she like visited Lovecraft's grave like a few years ago when she went, went to oh, New sick. York. And I think yep. she brought, that she brought me an Elder Sign sticker, which I do have on this laptop, which is why it's still just about working. <laughs> I, I have been to Lovecraft's grave too many damn times. I think I've only missed <laughs> two of the Necronomicons out of all the ones they've held. Oh, that's something. Uh, that's 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 a bucket list thing. Necronomic heading up, heading off to a Necronomicon. It, it they are it, an ex. I have seen such sights at Necronomicon. <laughs> well, now, now that I'm back, so, some of them even good. Now that I'm back, um, it's and I think we were kind of working our way towards this. Um, but I, I feel like I kind of officially have to um, use the use the activation phrase that I've programmed into Ash um, and see what happens. Oh God, which, which is, one? Uh, politically left Lovecraftianism. Um, <laughs> I just immediately storm out of my apartment with like this thousand yard stare. Because I feel like that's that's sort of the, that's sort of the problem that that any discussion around Lovecraft has to has to sort of reckon with which is as sean pointed out that like he's a reactionary he's he is in revolt yes against the modern world um so i so i don't know i'm i'm just curious to know what you both think about that especially in the context of this film <laughs> so what one thing one thing that i kind of um i'm gonna build i'm gonna build slowly to a point uh, one of the things that we see in Lovecraft's fiction, like the fundamental reactionary nature of HPL's writing, uh, it's it's not the surface level stuff, right? It's not it's not the 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 boxer in Herbert West. It's not the name of the cat. That stuff is horrible for sure. But like the very core construction that there is an alien race of sentient creatures to which we are permanently and irrevocably antagonistically oriented, and and it's it's simply a game of who wins the genocide. Like at its core, the very concept of of Lovecraft's writing is right leaning. At the, I'll say right leaning at the very least, right. Um, but I think like a door is slowly opening to something else, something that honestly might be will be more interesting and might even be scarier in the fun way. Where so I think a lot about um there's kind of a meta commentary on uh, there's a book called the Necronomicon Files uh, by two individuals Harms and Gaunts. Um, it is a gigantic book split into two sections. The first section is a a literal history of the Necronomicon. So when when did Lovecraft write the book? It, it's kind of material history. When did it escape HPL's writings into other works? All the way to our modern day, where people are writing books that they call the Necronomicon that are used as like magic texts, and then that jumps into the second half of the book, where you have, uh, um, I think it's Harms is the one who's talking about the magic history of the Necronomicon and how Lovecraft Lovecraft's own writing escaped his orbit and got absorbed into the greater occult with like chaos magic, probably being the most predominant utilizers of Lovecraft's figures and world, his sandbox. Um, and and what, I, what I like tether this to, to move us towards something politically left, is that um, something we talked about on one of the other Lovecraft episodes we've done is that I, I think it's a misreading to, to say that Lovecraft's characters go insane. Or rather, I think there's a more interesting reading. And that's they, they become ultra sane. Right. Like, what, what would you do if you woke up and you found out that the entire history of the human race was because we were like a gas station project for Cthulhu? that Cthulhu forgot about 
and and eventually parts of his tools became humanity and our entire civilization is just because we were a pit stop on so, on someone's galactic road tour you know like that would fundamentally reorient your entire relationship with reality in a way that would make you be perceived as insane by people who haven't had that reorientation and isn't that marxism is isn't that left <laughs> politics like isn't that like we're we're literally melting the glaciers and burning the planets and driving orcas to the point where they're organizing insurrectionary violence against boats all because some CEO needs needs to make a line go up. You get critical support for our orca comrades, mm-hmm. of course. I, if, if we've learned anything from Lovecraft, it's sentient beings from the ocean are right always and deserve our support. <laughs> I think I think that is the lesson. The lesson here, but I think I think that this kind of like, for me anyway, it it opens a door to uh, weird theory and weird utilizations of Lovecraft that aren't beholden to all of the proto-fascist ideologies baked into the writing itself. And we see that emerge in the Cthulhu movie that we're talking about today, right? Like we look at the orientation of the cult of Dagon, right? It's, it's no longer like this, the, the, like Lovecraft would, Lovecraft describes his cultic members as degenerates and backwoods and living in the swamps. And essentially he's just talking about rural people from Appalachia whenever he's talking about an evil cult. Um, and, and in this one, like, no, like it's, it's the city fathers. It's, it's everyone in, in proper order. It's, it's a, it's a like one-to-one analogy for the Catholic church that we're talking about today. <laughs> I think that in, in terms of the actual text of the film, I think there's a, it is a little bit more complicated than that because we do oh, have, for example, we have, you know, like, like uh, the cops are depicted as being a kind of like a force of sort of a, a, a more, a more plain kind of um, or old school reaction against this mm-hmm. new thing, which they seem to be revolting against. Be- you know, yeah, in the climax of the film, where you know uh, Russ's dad just blasts them both with a shotgun. You know, the two, the two, mm-hmm. the two cops, and mm-hmm. that's because they're precisely they're trying to preserve. I don't, and I, you know, I don't want. To, I, it would be boring and tedious to try and like do like one to one, you know, like correspondences of the different political ideologies and institutions represented in this films. But you know, it is uh, it is a, a conflict of the forces of reaction that we see at play in this film. Um, Agreed. And in terms of, and, and just to return to your point there, John, before we get on, because I'm aware that we haven't, we, I know that we are, we're teetering, we're teetering on the edge of the formalism zone, and we still have not talked about the film. Um, <laughs> but just to respond to, just to respond to what you said there specifically about what a politically left of craftianism, what that look, would look like. I mean, I don't quite, I don't know, How, um, but the for me, and maybe this is just like my 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 uh, my delusion dalliances speaking through me here, uh, but it would. Surely, it would have to. It would be something that would begin dealing with the eco- economies of desire, though, right? Because yep. for love, especially because you know Lovecraft's sexual paranoias, and I know some writers have said that too much has been made of that, and there is uh, reason to believe that he was, you know, fundamentally kind of like a normal guy about sex, and his writing just just did not demonstrate an interest in it because he wasn't just because he wasn't interested in conveying that in his writing for whatever set of reasons and other people have disagreed and said no he was just kind of like he was he was kind of weird about sex because he was kind of weird about everything but um in terms of um <laughs> yeah but there's the thing that has often been pointed out though and, and like alan moore has done you know has done tremendously yep. interesting things with this with uh neonomicon and providence which are books with which i have like some issues because um because there really are things in there which i think are providence definitely in, in providence in, in particular i i really like providence and i read it is the like the only comic book as an adult i've read as it's mm. come out because i was very enthralled with this 
horrible, actually quite tasteless thing, but we're still doing one of those interesting things I've ever seen the comics writer do, because it is Alan Moore, obviously. But um, fuck, what was I saying? Yeah, but, so, but what Alan Moore, like, I think it is Alan Moore that said this, like, points out, is the fact that, like, the unspeakable rituals that Lovecraft unspeaks of in his books almost always result in hybrids of some kind. Like, and the thing is, like, mm-hmm. they're unspeakable because they're because they're about sex, but also because they're about miscegenation, but they're about yes. the, 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 the blending of stocks which ought not to be blended is a source of horror for Lovecraft as well as possibly just the actual physical act of sexual intercourse right so a left Lovecraftianism would have to be a queer Lovecraftianism then because it would have to be one which is which is at home with alien desire and indeed desires the alien um one which wants to and I'm, I'm saying this perfectly seriously one that does want um a surface top cthulhu to just just really really sort you out <laughs> and <laughs> just just and uh, <laughs> as a fourth is first and i will not be giving any reasoning reason before that uh but yeah like seriously though like this would be this is surely what what, what it would be because the, it, it would have it would have to be something that begin but it's about love, love and sex physically, mm. just like actual the physical heaving of bodies. Right? It would have to be mm-hmm. about that. It was so in a certain sense, it would have to be both. It would have to be both idealistic and tremendously materialistic as well. Lovecraft is, after all, a materialist. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what that's what it would be. I don't know what it would look like in terms of a policy platform. <laughs> nor am I especially mm-hmm. in. Nor am I especially yeah. interested. Being uh, being an aristocrat of the soul, I am of course uninterested in such things. But yeah, no, I completely agree. <laughs> like, I think this is this is the area in which in which. You, we can kind of move beyond the 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 the, the very. I think there's an often. Uh, it's very easy to do the kind of knee jerk moral dismissal and just go, well, we don't need to. Uh, but the yes. legacy, yeah. the legacy and influence is too big. The ideas are too kind of important. Um, and you know, I'm sure there are plenty of like weird, uh, weird white right wing reactionaries who would love to kind of keep Lovecraft to themselves. But you, but even. Well, like Esty yeah, and uh, yeah. Robert M. Yeah, yeah. Even, there, even there, you see that same kind of like teeming libidinal economy, those kind of flows of desire and money and and uh, hybridity, all kind of like roiling just beneath the kind of discursive surface. So I think I think you're right. It has to start with this idea of of desire, of of love, of 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 the kind of most uh, kind of foundational question of what is it that you want well i I want to talk about Cthulhu 2007 (laughs) (laughs) i I feel like we're doing some kind of like gag right now where it's like three queer sorcerers walk into an hp lovecraft themed bar (laughs) can't get to the formalism zone am i right Oh dear. So how do we feel about Cthulhu 2007's utilization of news clips uh, to establish context? This is something that I found to be quite quite fascinating about the film beyond the kind of uh, obvious surface reading. We're setting up a lot of drama. It's setting up a kind of apocalyptic tone, if you will. Uh, but we're now, yeah, we're now the, almost partic- 20 years after that. <laughs> Yeah, and in particular, there's specific. I mean, one of the things uh, is specifically is climate apocalypse that's going on. Like, yep. like, you know, there's all these references, you know, sort of like um, Eskimo terrorism in the Arctic and so on. Is how, uh, is how they put it in the film. And um, 
inter- I'm aware that we've I'm aware that we've lost John, but I'll just keep speaking. Um, but yeah, the, sorry, um, sorry. Well, like I said, this is the weird this is the weird signal takeover. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, the uh, yeah, I in in on, I like the use of like I like the use of um, news clips and so on. I like that all of the you know that you know apocalypse just out of sight is always kind of cool you know sort of like but it's some and it's also just sort of like disturbingly like as the world is a much a much more unpredictable and chaotic place than it was even when this film was made and the film and the world of 2007 was very chaotic and unpredictable but just the fact that you know like there's always like the sneaking suspicion in the back of my head that i will like be you know basically taking a shit or like look at the news and we'll say that sort of like russia's launched the nukes and that'll be how i find out you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, sort of like the use of sort of like broken, just sort of like just out of earshot news clips is very, is very evocative. And I find that like on a, on a formal level, an aesthetic level, quite interesting. I, 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 it's, um, I, I think that's something that works. Um, likewise, it's interesting as well that the actual belief system of the esoteric order of Dagon, likewise, is something that we only ever hear in like, shouted arguments of people talking over yeah. each other so you just get snippets of like words like mesopotamia and so like, why why do you think the christians use the fish as their symbol and so on mm-hmm. which we never go into it's very it's very m john harrison in that way actually these are just like things that are happening out of sight you know because how you know that's you know that is just what it would actually fucking be like right um i like that um to I, i'm just gonna use I'm, I'm on the soapbox now so i'm just gonna use this as an opportunity just to talk broadly about you know, the do film it. itself um it's it's um this is like low budget going into micro budget territory and to the film's detriment it feels like that um i think in and this may be sort of a bit mean-spirited to sort of like criticize the film on these grounds because you know this is just the reality of of, of how the film is made you know it is a tiny tiny budget film made mm-hmm. by I, I i don't know too much about the circumstance of it or, or circumstances of its production to be perfectly honest but it is a film that is attempting to to talk about like huge big literally you know world-ending apocalyptic uh themes and events and it's one and and it doesn't have it, it can't do that though because just because of budgetary and technical limitations like so the points were so in a certain sense you know when we get to like the big apocalyptic action towards the end of the film this is when the film becomes very unconvincing it, it feels like it feels mm. like if the film had been it is too long, and I think both me and Ash may have watched an extended cut of it because we both because the did. director Dan, Dan, Dan Gilder. If you're listening to this, I'm sorry, but I said things a little bit critical of the film because I'm still loved <laughs> that this film exists. Um, but um, also, Dan Gildar can't be his real name, right? Gildark is too perfect a, a, a name for this. But, <laughs> um, but uh, the um, it, yeah, and because like because he upload and he's uploaded it to YouTube like himself, and it's, I think it's an extended cut that he's uploaded because it's long. The runtime is longer than the one that you see like advertised on like google like available to rent and to buy but regardless mm-hmm. it is too long it does drag um it tries to do too much it would be i th- it would be ultimately a better film if it was a lot tighter and there was a lot more maybe focused just on the family drama because like i said when it does like try to become a bit more like a conventional horror movie or sort of like um you know uh gibbering creatures in the dark and all of that it's just not as it's not as effective as it is when it's people just when it's people in rooms talking which is my favorite genre of film um so yeah that's uh yeah um all this being said i love that this film exists because it is such a peculiar thing you know it's 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 um 
and it's difficult to imagine how the gay if the gay Cthulhu movie could possibly exist other than in the form it presently exists. Although, actually, you know, like you know, we live in the we live in the world of 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 Skinner's Marink, so we now know anything is possible <laughs> with like five pounds of the length of string. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, like, and and as a as a fellow aficionado and fan of the uh, people sit and talk quietly in a room cinema, uh, there are bits of this which are really good. Um, I think the scenes at the family dinner scenes mm-hmm. are great. Yes. I lo- I love that they make the choice of they you just plant a camera and for like forty five seconds you don't move it <laughs> and and you you're just you're just in this room with people that you don't want to talk to listening to a conversation you wish wasn't happening and it's so just uncomfortable and sad yeah and, like and perfect because that, that line you know, saw like the line that his dad just saw like throws at him so so how's the gay life russell is something that i think in a certain way could land as being sort of like a bit of a stupid like stupid on the nose but like no it isn't like that is absolutely the kind of thing that someone would just throw at you like that so you know, so how is the gay life though it's like because it's such a, a studied and cruel precision to that and the way he does just throw mm-hmm. it at him as like and i think he's just lifting a glass of wine to himself as he says it you know because it is it is an insult and it hits yeah. very unpleasantly um and yeah it's yeah so yeah there's a lot of things like like yeah that's, i kind of like went back and forth for whether or not i liked the dialogue and actually i was tech i was texting ash as i was watching it and like and i think i literally said something like oh, you know, oh you know it's a bit weak with dialogue at some points and then we got the line was it fuck you you fish faced frog freaks or something like that as a, no take it all back best film um brilliant brilliant no <laughs> yeah. notes perfect cinema no notes <laughs> um yeah, someone has written in the notes in New Metal Cinema, and I want to hear an explanation. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, we continue the HV thesis on the development and refining of New Metal Cinema of the early 2000s. So this is, this is I think, build, um, interestingly enough, building off of some of your points, Sean, where it's like, as as and, and I'm intentionally gatekeeping this here. I'm one of two people alive who can who can make official statements on whether or not a movie is too long. And this movie was too long. Um, Thank I, you. I think <laughs> I think I'll get to say I, I as as the kind of like arcane magus of cinema length. I I will like emerge from my like enclave and knight this movie as being uh, maybe an hour too long. <laughs> At least the director's cut. And I think part of the thing for me that like makes it makes it too long is. It's it's got that 2007 color grading, that 2007 oh, filmic look. Yeah, like, yeah. I didn't I, want I was, to say I didn't want to say that it does look just kind of ugly because I. But yeah, it it, it look, look, looks like one of the Saw movies in terms of its color and not not what we're seeing on scene, um, and how it's filmed and kind of like a lot of the cinematic decisions that are made. Like I was talking, um, I, was, I sent John a voice note this morning, and I was like, "This is the longest Rammstein music video to have no Rammstein music in it." <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. And I think visually, like that, that needs to either, you either need to make that a little shorter or you need to break that up. I think it kind of works though in the context of those news clips, uh, because because there is this kind of like. It's it's this moment where we're, we're living through right now. We're like we have this kind of almost anti hedonic approach to like hearing like events, events with like a, a capital E there. Like I I am I have never been more convinced in in my adult life. Like when I was younger, 
I, I, I used to think these fool thoughts that like, oh, like if Cthulhu came out of the ocean, things would change. And now I'm like, no, if Cthulhu came out of the ocean, a bunch of rich people would like hot glue tin cans together to make a submersible to go look at his feet. Like that's the only thing that would change. <laughs> it would just be bought and sold and repackaged and billions of people would die as as our bodies are harvested by shuggaths for raw materials. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's the it's the. It's a mediation of reality, right? Mm-hmm. Which I, th- which is what I think is interesting about a kind of twenty uh, first century, mid two thousands Cthulhu revival, because you know uh, that 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 decade of the of the two thousands is when really the kind of like constant mediation of the of the media, the media mediating the world to us became much more kind of ingrained into the into the day to day routine of social life. So it's like y- y- events are, they come kind of pre-filtered to you. And so that's really the only way that we kind of see them as quote unquote real now. Oh, it must be real. I saw it on the news, right? So <laughs> I, I think you're completely right. It's like, and and if you think of, if you think of the Cthulhu mythos as a kind of like unveiling of the forbidden truth, um, as, as the capital R real breaking into a mostly symbolic and imaginary world, to use the Lacanian triad, then like it kind of does make sense that we would become really interested in Cthulhu again. Yeah, no, no, no. I, and I think this is this is part of the, this kind of like constellation of things that because I absolutely agree with Sean's earlier comment that like I do not know what a, a left Lovecraftianism would look like totally or in practice right like because that is that is a a a large boulder to push up a hill it's it's a boulder fused together by some of the most racist writing ever made (laughs) um (laughs) but but one of the things one of the things i i I do consider is that like the something that we talked about at the start of this episode three hours before we entered the formalism zone and something (laughs) that i think this movie starts to like i don't know like like shamble its way towards is this uh I don't know, like to the total vindication of chaos magicians everywhere. We we've we've erected all of these like semi artificial media structures and imbued them with an infinite magic energy, and now we're totally beholden to them. And and these kind of Lovecraftian ones like Cthulhu, Azathoth, Theogzathoth, uh, there there there's a there's an appropriate slipperiness to them, right? Right? There's this inalienable queerness to their identities because because the thing that makes them, the thing that kind of defines these creatures is is their constant passing into unknown spaces you know like the most boring cthulhus are the ones where people just kind of convert cthulhu into a godzilla into just another kaiju that's rumbling around the ocean sinking ships but because- every every cthulhu that's compelling is something that is dragging us back into the deep because the best the mean in 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 you know riffing on that the best Cthulhu is and this is and we mentioned this I'm certain we mentioned this in the on the the, the weird signal episode uh, querying the mythos back in two which we did back in 2019 and 2018 or something which if I'd had the like the the presence of mind I would have listened to before coming on <laughs> this to talk about the same thing but um, I think it was like our, I think that was like our second most successful episode or something but um one thing that uh, uh but one thing that I always think about because I just find this fascinating is Peter Lavender's book um and I've talked I've talked about it so many times now on different podcasts but Peter Lavender's book The Dark Lord H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and the Typhonian Typhonian Tradition of Kenneth Grant um which is a book I've re- like uh, I should not have got rid of that 
my copy of it because I always refer back to it. But what uh, Peter Lavender, who wrote the Simon Necronomicon, no matter what yep. he says, he wrote the Simon Necronomicon, um, which is st- still sort of like the definitive Necronomicon you can get. It's the Simon one, and he did write it and has lived like a bit of a weird life himself. I know, like, one of my friends is convinced that the guy has to be a spook or something, and I like. <laughs> Possibly, I don't know. It would make sense if he were. I don't know. But yeah, the um, but Lavender, um, what he discovered in this book or points out in this book, um, and is that um, the date that Lovecraft sets the police raid in the Call of Cthulhu, uh, the police raid on the so-called voodoo ritual, um, which occurs on the, uh, which I believe occurs on the date that we discover is actually when Hurle rose from the ocean and like Cthulhu's psychic presence became its strongest and the one that like, mm-hmm. you know, all the sensitives in the world like wake up with nosebleeds. That date is the date that Alistair Crowley when he was engaging in a very long series of ritual um, acts uh, to scry all of the different ethers, uh, ethers of uh, John Dee's Enochian system of magic, mm-hmm. it's the date he sets that is the date where Alistair Crowley in real life, quote unquote real life at least, um, was in the ether that he was he wrote about the like the visions that he experienced exploring one of the particular ethers, ethers i forget which and one of the words he hears and he writes down and says i do not know what this means something like that he didn't couldn't decrypt it or um is clue and it is such a when you learn that that's such a fucking thing to learn right mm-hmm. that uh mm-hmm. you know like like Crowley Alistair Crowley vibrates the name Clulu on the same date but Lovecraft sets this ritual in the call of Cthulhu and like Yoshi insists that Cthulhu should be pronounced Clulu and that is how it's pronounced in this film as well by Russ's dad Clulu mm-hmm. um the and the thing what what the thesis that like Lavender extends here basically is that Lovecraft and Crowley both being psychics, which is what you know is our materialist position on this podcast that it is all real, of course, and uh, that they that uh, no Crowley Crowley sort of like when he's channeling the ninety three currents, the currents of Thelema, Lovecraft picks up on this as well. But you know Crowley, this is just like absolute total libidinal freedom, uh, and for Lovecraft, this is the end of everything. Yeah, the same thing, the same, you know, so like the the liberatory impulse of Salima is, you know, for Lovecraft because of him being, you know, the reaction of Lovecraft, this has to just be horror. Like, again, he writes, and what he writes about in Call of Cthulhu is precisely that. That's what happens when, when, you know, when Cthulhu will rise, you know, it'll just be, it will be an, both an orgy of destruction and an orgy. You know, that's what is going to, and that's the the horror, the horror of it, of people just having a great old time, uh, having a lovely old time together. And uh, he, that's what he can't cope with. And that's, you know, well, for Crowley, obviously, you now that's just everything that he's about, right? Obviously, Crowley was a terrible person and quite reactionary politics. But, you know, <laughs> if he was an image of what a queer, love, you know, politically level of craftianism would look like, it would look more like, like Crowley and anarchy. Like, or this would look kind of like a Crowley and anarchy, right? Uh, yes. I love these takes. Feed me. This is great. <laughs> this, this, this is exactly what, I, what I'm here for. It's all also, real. If, That's the thing. It's all real. <laughs> if, if our listeners wanted to, I don't know, perhaps get more familiar with the figure of Aleister Crowley and, oh, I don't know, maybe uh, another early 2000s movie 
<laughs> made based on this problematic mm. associated with occult forces, mm. dark, mysterious figure. Um, Sean, do you have any suggestions? Um, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I have a feeling that you might. Well, wouldn't you believe it? There's a movie called Chemical Wedding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is the best film you'll ever see uh and you can watch it all on youtube with hard encoded portuguese subtitles right now uh yeah listen to listen to the horror vanguard slash weird signal episode about chemical wedding if you want to learn more or just watch chemical wedding <laughs> beautiful beautiful uh, episode <laughs> well, uh, you were talking you were talking a little bit about the call of cthulhu but i think there is one other Lovecraft text we should talk about before we get into the 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 the, the meat of the film itself, because um, this is this is technically a, a a loose, a very loose, or perhaps strangely accurate adaptation of the Shadow of Rinsmith. Yes, um, uh, and for people who are maybe not as as deep into Lovecraft as as others, uh, Ash, Sean, would you maybe like to? How how does this how does this function as an adaptation? Do, do you want but, to take that, Ash, or shall I? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can jump into this. I, I mean, I think this does uh, fairly, fairly well as a uh, adaptation of the, the the Shadow over Innsmouth. Right, the Shadow over Innsmouth has the classic Lovecraftian structure of of dude dude comes back to town and then uh oh everyone's a deep one everyone's a fish person fish person cult mayhem ensues um the but in the end the end i think is which is something we could talk to about if we want a little distinction between the end is at the end of the shadow over Innsmouth, our protagonist um decides to go to Yoharnathlay to in, to to be with the deep ones to be reabsorbed back into this like like hidden history system and in our film we're left with a bit bit of a bit of a question that that appears at the end here but i think that this is actually one of the most successful and this is something we talked about all the time whenever we do a lovecraft episode lovecraft is so hard to adapt for a whole host of reasons but i think cthulhu is a really successful adaptation of a lovecraft story and I, I think it, it becomes so accessible because it, it it does, I think, two things that are absolutely necessary. And this is, you know, to, to build on your point, Sean, like it embraces just just the libidinal mayhem, just 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 the over overheated pressure cooker of libidinal desire that is Lovecraft's writing at its core. And and this the, this movie, you know, carries that tradition forward. This is about desire. It is about love. It is about sexual lust. Um, but that's all sublimated through in a layer of oppressive politics, which I think is very appropriate for the context. And then it doesn't, we don't like perhaps owing to the shoestring budget of this film, like we don't get a lot of like, the worst thing you can do in a Lovecraft adaptation is give me a gorgeous 4K 3D modeled Cthulhu that we linger on for 10 minutes. Like that's that's the that's the greatest sin you can commit. And this movie is very frantic and very grainy and very not doing that. Yes, agreed. Um, one thing I actually just want to acknowledge very, very quickly is is um, that there are going to be two places that people listening to this will know of this film from. One mm-hmm. is going to be just like 
murders osmosis like i remember reading uh, an article in 2007 in like sci-fi now magazine or something a review of this film that's how i knew about it which was not a, a nice review of it the other places people will know it from uh the h bomber guy video about you know queerness and lovecraft uh that where, where he talks about this so, so i just want to i just i so just, i just wanted to acknowledge that uh, uh, that that's probably where people some people will know this from because what he does in that video is need to precisely talk about some of the things that we're, we're touching on here about you know love love lovecraft and queerness because the thing in particular the thing that makes the shadow over innsmouth a very interesting story by lovecraft's own standards is it sort of has a happy ending in the weird sense mm-hmm. yeah and it's sort of and this is what like you see what's obviously you get a glimpse of this of probably what the internal the interior chaos of hp lovecraft as a man probably was like in that and, and this is what you know maybe you know there probably is something to the idea you know but there was maybe in whatever sense you know whatever you know queerness is a word that sort of means nothing mm-hmm. right and, and and long may it mean nothing but um because what because you know it ends you know because the story is this guy who goes off to you know to Innsmouth and uh, he's horrified by what he sees and he nearly dies and all of that and then discovers that he has Innsmouth blood in him yep. and he's starting to dream about, you know, the city of the deep ones and all of that. Like, so, you know, like he decides to just go with it uh, because it will be better. And, um, and that's what makes it a much more interesting story than, than it would have been otherwise, because Lovecraft's other stories would end with some kind of like, you know, racist um, reinvocation of the, of the, of, of the social order and and the violence necessary to preserve it and shadow over innsmouth does not in that sense it ends with the protagonist learning something about themselves and deciding to forsake the world in favor of that of of this discovery that they've made about who they are and the people they can be with and realizing that this is better um yeah, so the film, like, so, so yeah, the film is not an ad- adaptation of the Call of Cthulhu; it's an adaptation of Shadow of Innsmouth, and like the, the town is called uh, Rith- like they pronounce it Rivermouth, uh, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, oh yeah, God, so, yeah, 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 and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it, um, yeah, so that that is that is indeed what's going on here. Um, and part of, like part of the th- part of it as well is that you know they they are what we learn is they're sacrificing their children to the deep ones for reasons that I don't think the film ever quite makes clear what they're doing it, which isn't a problem. But um like it's it's to gain like some kind of, you know, like worldly prosperity, I think is the is the is the implication, right? You know, mm-hmm. because that is and that is indeed what again that is from from the story to I, I it's been such a long time since the Shadow of Rensmith. I can't actually quite remember like all the I can't remember all of the beats of it. But that is part of the story, right? That um you know the the cultists like live quite well because the deep ones can just like bring them gold from under mm-hmm. the ocean you know and like there's a penalty you know there's a cop there's a cost to it but yeah and like the thing with um with alan moore's neonomicon which i already mentioned like that just makes it very very plain like what's going on with this which is just that like they're screwing the deep ones and it's kind of great because of like whoa that boy can go at it uh like (laughs) and like everyone that's one of the things that is kind of like which some of the things are so gross about neonomicon Neonomicon, it's just just all these horrible (laughs) just 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 like this horrible sort of like swinger club just hooking up with a deep (laughs) one they're just all having the best time of their life with it though there's a there's a wonderful book of short stories called cthulhu rotica um and and there's one story in there that that is uh 
it, it's like your classic Lovecraftian story told from the protagonist or told from the protagonist and the perspective of our story is this husband. It's his husband and wife. And every night the wife like enters into this unrecognizable trance goes out to the beach and, and the husband can hear her howling as if demons are attacking her. And she comes, she comes back like with this, 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 this grin in her eyes full of this evil joy. And she's covered in this sea goo and it's, it's him going mad trying to figure out what's happening. And like, as, as the reader, we're like, Oh, we, we know it's, we know what's going on. Here. <laughs> she's having fun for the first time in her life. So, Let's talk about the movie then. Yes. <laughs> we're, Cthulhu, we've been 2007. Cthulhu, parentheses, gay, parentheses, 2007. <laughs> uh, Should so, we say what the film's about? Should we say what actually yeah, so, happens in the okay, film? Okay, so, so, so the, the film is about the film is about Russell, a, uh, a young, uh, one of those liberal intellectuals, uh, a a I think a history professor, right? A, a Li- college professor, literature professor, p- professor of studies. Yes, professor of studies at the, um, at the University of Institutes. Yes, <laughs> and uh, who who one day gets a call uh, from from a family member that says you have to come back to town. Your mother has died. You you're the executor of the estate, um, and it very quickly becomes clear why Russell left town. Uh, and why he doesn't speak to his devoutly religious father. Um, and I think without spoiling too much, because I think we'll get into the rest, that's a good that's a good summary of the setup to the to the film, right? Yes, yes. And I think that leads us into into uh, something I know Sean you wanted to talk about, which is this question of like what does it mean to go home again? Yes, indeed, because this is this is something that the film is just very, very present in the plain text of the film, which is simply whether or not to come home and whether or not you can come home, right? Uh, I do also want to sort of like g- give us a warning, like, okay, like, listener, dear listener, in parentheses, I have written in the notes, uh, Sean talks about his best friend, Heidegger, um, here. And I also, <laughs> uh, because I, uh, d- I, I just did not, I have done no preparatory reading uh, for this episode at all. I'm very, very sorry. This is just things I vaguely remember. This is very much, this is riffing. This is jazz Heidegger, which I'm so certain he would have approved of um the yeah so homecoming 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 so in particular this is a, this is a film that deals with home with with the question of the possibility of homecoming as such and in particular queer homecoming so what what but so well to start off then like the question is what is a home and uh although i have written in my notes and i wrote these quite quickly i wrote home is the original clearing whereby being is released into the being this of its, being in this of its own being um <laughs> Even I'm quite sure what that means. Although that is exactly what I mean. So, like, so, how, okay. So, what, what, what I mean when I like said like misremembering Heidegger. What, what do I mean by any of this? Like, how, when we when we talk about home and being at home, that is what we mean. Though we do mean the original clearing, whereby being is released into the being of its own being, this of its own being. By which all I mean, I mean nothing more, more grand or exotic, and simply that in a certain sense that you can be yourself, um, and. And being and and what being yourself, or again in Heideggerian language, the releasing of beings into into their own being, into the you know, the the the, um, the allowing of the allowing of beings, the presence as themselves and not as something else, is to 
requires a space. Well, it requires just a space first of all. It require it requires a it requires a space, which can uh, and also a space which is at, which is peaceful because. And by peace, we mean here simply the capacity of 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 a being. And you know, I, I mean, obviously, by this, you know, I mean people. You know, sort of like you yourself, um, to simply to, to exercise the freedom of their own being without having to comport themselves comport themselves to dispositions alien to their own nature. Um, home, therefore, is the is the site where is the site where we can be free to be ourselves in peace ultimately you know but that's that's uh and i have also written sort of like de- the words like destining origination and so on which i'm just not going to get into because like because it's it's half past nine and i am and i did just drink a fair bit of jim beam as we've been talking um but so so okay so like i think i think roughly i think you understand why i mean when i'm talking about what home what a ho- what home is and and homecoming therefore is the is is you can I mean, you could you use marx you could easily use marxist language for for this you know moving out of a state of alienation into a state of a species being or whatever or you know dispositionally i prefer the i prefer how, um, how heidegger thinks about these things but the um homecoming therefore is the is 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 a is a return. It's a return to a to that site of the original, or of to that original site of the peace of, of peaceful being with oneself and with other, and with other beings, which likewise can peacefully be themselves. I'm so sorry. I know how I know how abstract and how tangential this is to to Cthulhu <laughs> Gay 2007. But uh, and again, I did write further down in my notes. I have no idea how to link this to the text of the film. But what well, all this is coming to basically now be like. Um, peacefulness of the release of the releasement of beings into their own being and homecoming and so on all of that's very well but what if you can't because uh you're gay and daddy's a homophobe yeah you know where, coming, yeah. where, where we're <laughs> yeah. coming to with this you know what this would therefore mean then what homecoming and this is where things become a lot more interesting uh homecoming there a queer homecoming then cannot be a return because um Queers aren't don't belong to an exiled diaspora. There isn't a queer homeland mm-hmm. that we can return to, which we can invoke an ancestral claim to and say, This is this was the land of my of my ancestors to which I can return, because that's not what queerness is. Um, although there is a community although there is a certain irreducible irreducible communitarianness to being queer, because um you know, all queers share something very important in common despite despite our differences and despite our, our antagonisms with one another. Um there is a realness to queerness. So you know you know I probably said stuff with them at the Carnians angry there or whatever. But yeah the um, but what is for a queer then to seek a homecoming would that would be inseparable from uh, the spirit from from the intrepid spirit and the spirit of discovery and the spirit of creation. There is no queer homeland except that which we make right now, and it has to be an active force of creation, and it can also be something that is perhaps quite almost heartbreakingly personal and interior in a certain sense a queer homecoming the cre- the articulation and the creation of a queer space could be something that exists nowhere nowhere except outside of your own sense of your sense of your own being or nothing wider and larger than indeed even your own bedroom can be can be the queer homeland and this film is is so much 
so much of just the plain text of this film, like I said, it's just dealing with, you know, like on the textual level, the film is a gay guy coming back home because he ha- mm-hmm. he's got a sense of obligation to, to, to returning home, but he can't go home. And, you know, this is almost kind of a bit hero's, hero's questy, right? You can never come home again, right? Once you've left because you change and home changes as well. But it's more than that for, it's more than that for Russell. And it's more than that for the queer because you discover that home is never really home in the first place because home didn't grant you uh, the peace which releasement into your own being has to grant you for it to be home. Um, so home, so then for the queer, coming home is has to be building and it has to be b- building the space to dwell in. And I'm using deliberately Lydigarian language again here. Uh, it's building the space to dwell in. Dwelling and, and, and dwelling is always you know, the gathering of things together in the spirit of peacefulness um, so that things can be released into their own being. And um, which I, I know that's a, that's a really opaque like turn of phrase that I'm using, which I, 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 I wish I, I just don't have the capacity to to explain exactly, to explain <laughs> it too, too precisely. Just, just go with the vibe it's making you feel. Because I think the vibe of what is making you feel is a, is a good guide here um really you know gathering things into the peacefulness of their own being i think we all kind of get that right on the surface level and ah so basically it's about being 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 gay and finding the other gays and living with the gays uh and that is and that in a very plain sense that's what it is but but that, that's the, the the thing i'm trying to get at though is you know queer homecoming has to is, is the is 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 building is it's art it's it's articulation it's a creative articulation rather than simply a return because there is nothing for us to return to that's the thing does that make any sense? I'm so sorry, but it's because I'm so. No, like that I was said, I just threw, I threw this together last night. <laughs> no, that is I, that is the kind of magic we're here for on the show. I actually think I actually think that's a really quite honestly quite a quite a beautiful way of putting it. And like in in terms of affect, like the film is really good at making like it's it's about dread right it's like it's not it's not just a sense of obligation but it's this very real kind of feeling of like giving up something you know it, it's not about going home he's leaving home right the the space that has been carved out away from these people and i i, I think you put it really beautifully that there is no home to begin with anyway because if if it was it would have been something completely different um but it is what it is and there is this kind of like this this wearied dread of going back to something um and knowing that to do so means necessarily kind of like inflicting a kind of sort of violence upon yourself as well as the actual violence and the and the linguistic cruelty and the the coldness of the and the isolation of going back into uh, this you know this profoundly homophobic domesticity Yes, oh, I think these are such good readings of the text, and they, they apply to this movie just so, so strongly. Like this is this is this kind of like I know I know academically and outside of the university system, the phrase "queering the Lovecraftian" is its own internalized minefield. But like this is this this is how we do it. This is exactly what we're looking for. Um, I mean, I, I know I've already mentioned it, but that's why that's why that line. Uh, you know, it's kind of like ironically. Uh, I th- I think I saw someone in the comments to that video going, "Ah, that's the things my straight friends said say to me when they're trying to be supportive." <laughs> um, <laughs> how, 
but it's 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 so good like the true the true horror is not like the god beneath the waves right because that's really Mm -hmm. that's really such a small thing to worry about in the grand scheme of things oh oh one 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 hundred percent too and it like this is, I think, a great, like, the, the movie in a way becomes like this interesting materialist exploration of the intersection of I- issues that we often see being disassociated with class, even though, like, class and its material machinations are, like, the driving force of how those other issues are embodied in the world. You know, like, this is this is all about queerness, and, and our queer protagonist here seems to be doing all right on an economic level. You know, like like he he isn't hurting, um, but nevertheless, like being excised from the family, being excised from his mom's estate, you know, and all of the implications that 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 reads really well out there in the audience. If you're queer and you too are not in the will, uh, uh, not not because you now worship the evil fish gods, <laughs> but because you have a boyfriend and you're not having any kids. Yeah, and this is um, to kind of like dip our toes back into the formalism zone as well. This is where I think the film does become a little hopelessly confused of its own messaging because the the you know the evil terrible religion that you know that his parents practice that his parents practice isn't you know um, a reactionary form of Christianity. It's Dagon worship, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's the ba- and that's just like the bad guy, and it's homophobic. And it's um, and this up, and it all gets a bit ro- literally. I think deliberately, it all gets a bit Rosemary's Baby towards the end, and yeah, um, yeah, yeah very, and I, very much, yeah. And I don't think it quite, it doesn't. The different like uh, conceptual and thematic strands running through the film don't dovetail for me. Um, it feels like like the like uh, like the like because all this, there's all this climate apocalypse stuff like is it going on in the background, and like the selling their children for like prosperity today thing is obviously that right? You know, like you know, literally drowning your children uh, so that you can uh, in, in enjoy your goodies today is like very on the nose that you know what that's about. Um, and again, I don't think and ah. Uh, I don't know, like a better. It feels like I don't know, like um, uh, like the better film ends with him sort of like getting gay married to a deep one, right? You know, yep. like that. That would be that's that's what the film should have been. He, uh, he needed just, to just, go with his boyfriend to to Johannesle. Like that. That is that is how the the ending of this should have worked. Can I say I really like? There's some stuff like the stuff he has with um his 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 boyfriend Mike. Is like some of the best like like bits of 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 the film, and in particular, I've, one of the things I find really fascinating about Mike as a character is there are two different ways you could approach what he says and does in this film. One mm-hmm. is that um, he's you know because like because what we learn in the what we learn in the course of this film is him and Russ were were best friends when they were teenagers and they had a uh, a, a sexual and romantic relationship of some kind as well and the film um and when they no, like Russ comes back and there's a little bit sort of like awkward between the two of them at first and eventually you know sort of like um they uh, you know they, re- they you know they reunite and, and uh, they sleep together and one way you can read the character of Mike who we've discussed has like been married and divorced and has a daughter is that you know he has you know he's deep you know a deeply closeted uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, gay or bisexual man but I a much more interesting read of him I think uh, is that he is in a certain sense more genuinely queer than Russ is because because Russ is gay with, mm-hmm. a, you know, with a capital G he is like he you know there is a concrete 
identity in the economy of desire that yeah. Russ occupies. Uh, I, get, I am a gay man. And there's a line, which I remember from when I first watched this film about 10 years ago, um, even, where he, where Mike says to him, um, for me, the sex was all, wasn't a gay thing. It was just like a natural extension of our friendship. Which is a much more interesting thing to say, right? You know, mm-hmm. like uh, than sort of like, oh, you know, I could never admit it to myself, but actually, no, God, wow, like butt sex, right? God, blimey, <laughs> um, again, I am single. Um, the, <laughs> uh, but there's and and also one of the things that put me and and I and I wrote this down in my notepad, which I left at work. Uh, this isn't in the notes I put in the Google Doc. But one of the things that just made me think about was the fact that, uh, as I'm certain you know, we've all experienced queer friendships can often be kind of complicated when it because of because of sex and stuff right you mm-hmm. know like in a way that i think is unique to queer friendships that they often they often can be to appropriate uh, a, a a cursed phrase from a long time ago now there could be blurred lines with a queer friendship in a way that uh, it you know, can apply to straight to, to, to mm-hmm. straight heterosexual friendships as well but it can sometimes just be with with queer friendships there's a ten. There seems to be like there is just a an inbuilt capacity of them, you know, a a, a feature, not a bug to them, but like sometimes it's ever so slightly unclear what the name of this thing is that we have. Yes, and indeed, isn't that why it's kind of the best thing, you know, like uh, that 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 it can have like it can move into one direction and then move into another without ever quite fitting into any particular category right um it and there's something i and i find like in his own weird way because like mike actually seems to be sort of like fairly at home of his life you know like he actually he's sort of doing all right all things considered like he's kind of in denial about the fish cult stuff but like whatever like um and there's also <laughs> it's just it's such a, like a genuinely funny bit of the film when russ like rings mike at home to ask him like if he wants to co- go out for a drink and we realize that like like russ mike's watching the tv and we just realize he's just sort of like like just nonchalantly watching some pornography but just <laughs> like like just like yeah. Not especially interested or uninterested. They just sort of like pauses it to speak to Russ and then puts it back on again and just sort of like sits there watching it as if it were anything. Um, he's living, he's his, living pen- his best life. He's living his best life. He's just watching it from a story. You know, it's um, <laughs> it's for, it's for his pornography criticism podcast. <laughs> he'll, he'll be he, he'll be doing Lacanian analysis of a bang bus compilation volume. It's it's important work. <laughs> Hello, welcome, welcome to Porno Vanguard. We, we, we are we are step we are stepping we are stepping into the formalism zone. <laughs> the, formalism. Um, <laughs> the, the 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 use of Dutch angles here, I think, is a little troubling. <laughs> no, but I think I think I think your points your points are so strong because so much of Russ's conflict is this kind of it's it's two it's two solidified states vying for dominance in a space, right? Like. It's not too much of a stretch to see and read Russ as being this kind of homo, this force of homonormativity, right? Like this kind of like desire within within queerness to replicate the same kind of solidified states as you see in the kind of cis hat patrocentricities of of the world. And like, I really, really, really enjoy your reading of Mike because he has a much more appropriately 
mythos approach to sex and desire. This thing that not only is fluid, but this thing that does not require rigid taxonomies, right? Like you don't need a taxa for the kind of exchange that you've had, right? Like you're not friends with benefits. You're not in, in a polycule. You're not, you're, you're, you're just friends who have had sexual encounters, you know, like it's just a thing that has happened. It doesn't need to be subsumed into this concretizing force. Indeed. And this is the, um, and, you know, sort of like I would suggest to listeners to, um, uh, to, to, to listen to, the, you know, go and listen to the episode that I did, uh, the interview I recorded with Lee Adelman yep. um, for, yeah, for, yeah. for Weird Signal a couple of, uh, a few months ago, because precisely what he talks about in that and he talks about in, in, in his books is the sense that queerness is not an, um, queerness is not an identity as such. It is a, gap it is a hole that is you know and he puts it you know sort of like punningly but accurately it is the whole h-o-l-e <laughs> that is always present in the whole w-h-o-l-e that it is the um it, it, it is it is a it is almost like a almost like a, a structural consequence of any formulation of identity whatsoever because because you know in laconian you know the laconian real always sort of has to lie outside of it uh mm-hmm. and you know i i am not i am not a lacon scholar i don't tend to understand these things things but i go with the vibe uh and and also i think you know if we want to be if we go if we want to be good materialists which i am not about this film um the you know like rusty they say he's he's he is bourgeoisie you know he he is a liberal mm-hmm. middle class um academic and indeed the homophobic cop who we see interrogating him towards the end of the film who comes out with sort of like um homoph- you know, homophobic and anti-semitic like comments uh, about, about him so sort of like is very much like that kind of you know sort of like the trumpian thing of sort of like you you know sort of like you call yourselves minorities but you occupy the elite institutions of society what about us good honest working class people and of course which is obviously you know like you know it's one of those things where Ah, it's one of it is one of those Buster does have a point moments there in terms of like that it is different for speaking like myself, you know, sort of like a like middle class at least middle class adjacent, um, you know, sort of like a white gay guy, white cisgendered gay guy who has like a cushy, you know, sort of like a job, uh, like, you know, sort of like mid-tier corporate kind of thing. And I can indulge my hobbies as sort of like, as a, you know, sort of like we're talking about films with friends and so on and reading mm-hmm. literature and going on holidays and all of that. And on the one hand, like it is absolutely true. I do belong to a minority. And especially at the moment, I feel more aware of the fact that as a gay man, I do sort of and always will exist on society's sufferance as a gay man, right? But at the same time, it would be dishonest of me to... It would be dishonest for me to try and compare my lot with someone from a different... Who belongs to a different one, a different socioeconomic or or racial strata of society, or just or, or just to compare myself to you know to like a white middle class trans person, it would be a, it would we have things in common, important things in common that, that bind us together, but it would still be. I, it would be it would be trying to steal someone's value if I said sort of like I absolutely understand what you're going through, folks. No, I fucking don't. I'm a light. I'm you know I'm a I'm a middle class white middle class white gay boy with a, you know, a cushy job, right? And um, but at the same time, you know, queerness knows no boundaries. And like Mike, is, Mike runs a, like a pickup truck business or something like that, or just drives a pickup truck. 
you know, he he is not he does not belong to like the rarefied strata of society that Russ belongs to. He has, you know, what you you would call, you know, like he he's a blue collar job. He's much more a proletarian than Russ, who again he, he, he occupies, you know, one of like the definitive bourgeois positions you can occupy in society as an academic. And Mike's queer because this is indeed the whole thing, right? You know that um, the the lie to the that like um, populist anti elitist angle, sort of like you know we're protecting you know sort of like the values that ordinary people have because sort of like ordinary people it's queer as fuck, you know like this isn't mm-hmm. this isn't something that uh, this isn't something that's unique to any particular strata of society. Yeah the uh, the average the average blue collar guy just wants to. Uh, meet up with his old boyfriend, go home, watch his porno, <laughs> and worship Dagon. And you know, people- it's all I want. It's all I want. That's I'm it's the simple life. That, I'm gonna put them fucking hinge right after this. <laughs> I am. I actually, I fucking tweet. You know what? Just, um, I, I tweeted this actually, like, um, today. But just like, I, I, I did re-download Twinge early, uh, Twinge Hinge earlier today, and like, one of the first things I saw was like, re- like a real jacked dude. So like, putting as one of his like things, like, uh, what was the last spontaneous thing you did? And he said, climbing the property ladder. And, oh god! I just like I don't think you know what the word spontaneous means. If nothing else, like that requires an awful lot of planning. Unless it and if it genuinely was spontaneous, what, dude? Wow! Like <laughs> um, cavalier. Yeah, and there's another one who just sort of, sort of like what was it? Sort of like uh, oh, don't get me started on sarcasm and dark humor. So oh wow. Oh, no, no, I don't the, think the, any the of true, these men. The true Lovecraftian horror is hinged. <laughs> I don't I've, think I've, any of these men worship Dagon. Um, <laughs> I forget the it's it's endemic to the system too because I, I think it's the the prompt. Uh, you go, so uh, listeners, if you do if you are free and pure of heart and do not use the Hinge app, uh, one of the prompts is like I geek out on and it, and the autofill suggestion is Harry Potter comma even after all these years. <laughs> And I'm just, I just, I saw that last night and I was just like, you know what? You know what? I just, I just need to, I just need to take a boat down to relay. I need to do this the old fashioned way. Or we can just stick with grinder, just good old fashioned, <laughs> clean, fun on grinder, like <laughs> clean, honest grinder. It really is though. <laughs> like, we all, we all know what that's about, don't we? But yeah. <laughs> Going, giving everyone a glimpse of our lives here, aren't we? <laughs> uh, well, I was, I was this is now a personality-driven podcast. I was just about to say we uh, we've been going for about an hour and a half, and I do have oh, to, I do have to wrap things up. I'm afraid. Okay, okay. Any uh, any uh, any any final takes on on the movie that we have? I think extensively, thoroughly, and perhaps in too fine of a detail covered today. <laughs> Before I know, just because you mentioned him before we started recording, John, do you just want to like fucking just go for it about block, or is that like not even a possibility at this point? Well, well, well. Weirdly, I think we've kind of touched upon it because it's like what what, for block. Block talks about his utopian project as a place of like coming home, and the other way that he describes it, and in in a way which I actually think is really beautiful is this idea of like the place where men can walk upright as if for the very first time. So coming home is not even just like the place of freedom, but it's about the place of actually discovering what it is to be human full stop. And that human is not something which we would necessarily recognize in our current 
in the in the darkness of the current lived moment, as Block would put it, what's needed is the kind of um, is a sort of flash from the lighthouse of the utopian signal. You know, the 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 Vorschein, the full shining, as as Block puts it, and it's like this right there are these moments of kind of utopian possibility when the the restrictive realm of unfreedom that so many people are kind of forced to endure dissolves you know you step through a kind of doorway uh the the kind of boundary becomes very porous between this world and the next and it's those moments that you kind of see the possibilities of and the and the reason i think why so many people who are queer are drawn to lovecraft because it's like this world could be dissolved into nothing right there could be there is there are there are deeper truths within us than have any kind of external articulation where we are at the moment um yeah it can i i think it's so important you pointed out the shadow of over Innsmouth has a happy ending right it has a it has a utopian ending. Ooh, that is a beautiful sentiment to kind of wrap the episode on. I believe that is that is fantastic. Um, Sean, would you like to remind our listeners where they can find you, where they can find Weird Signal, how they can support your eerie shamblings? Ah, uh, you can plug, find plug. me on Twitter at Hauntonaut, at Hauntonaut, um, if you really want to, God knows why. Um, the I, I, I do a podcast, uh, Weird Signal, uh, uh, dedica- a podcast dedicated to all things weird, eerie, and hauntological, um, which you can, again, find, that's Weird, W-Y-R-D, that's Weird, W-Y-R-D, Signal, <laughs> uh, which you should find easily by Googling it, uh, and that is on Twitter. I think it's at Weird Signal pod and you'll be able to find it if you find me um and we have an incredibly infrequent release schedule but we have a uh, by the time you've listened to this we should like the most recent interview i recorded with someone uh should be coming up who i will not name because uh, that's a surprise although like i said it would this, this will probably come out after them well, it doesn't matter anyway um yeah and uh, yeah so um that, that is what you can do you can if you want more of the a similar theme listen to our episode from a couple of years ago pre-pandemic actually uh queering the mythos i cannot any i've probably just been repeating things i said uh or all that my co-host lucy said uh, on that episode but um yeah that is that's where you can find me those that that's all i have to plug that's weird signal weird with a y w-y-r-d <laughs> um yes <laughs> beautiful and all of that will be down in in the show notes uh weird signal is a fantastic podcast which is something that you've been hearing us say for i think years now uh but thank you thank you for joining us audience members in this uh discussion of the 2007 gay cthulhu movie uh yeah yeah and uh thank you thank you again for having me i've had i've had a blast uh oh no this is always great i i love it when our shows team up in in any of our numbers this is just fantastic Uh, we'll try and uh, god God knows when because aforementioned infrequent uh, release schedule but like maybe next time it will be like horror vanguard on weird signal uh which it will be like yeah it's two and a half hours long welcome to hell uh (laughs) that is (laughs) i think i think i think the last thing i'll say is to let our listeners know that next month uh the uh the other weird signal host is going to make an appearance in the hv crypt uh, no spoilers as to what that's about, but you're going to not be surprised at all. <laughs> Boom. Episode Cut. recorded. Cut it. 
We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.